0: Explaining, A Historian Tells You Why Everything You Know Is Wrong. These lectures are on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, YouTube, and other platforms. And if by any chance you can help keep them coming, please go to my Patreon page. The link should be in the description, and you'll have access to all of my patron-only content as well. Probably most of you heard or saw reports about the disastrous fire that hit the Cathedral of Notre Dame de Paris just in time for Easter and Holy Week. Now the fire of course was a huge tragedy and it presented a real threat to the survival of the building but as I told people at the time it could appear uh, more dire from a distance than it really was Uh, Notre Dame is a stone gothic cathedral and like all stone gothic cathedrals it's extraordinarily well built it's held up through many centuries and fires are one of several disasters that happen from time to time to cathedrals and in most cases they don't destroy them and they are eventually rebuilt and restored in one form or another Either to the state they were in before, or maybe in a completely new form. So I want to talk a bit about uh, about Notre Dame and about Gothic cathedrals, right? To understand what these are, you know, they're uh, you know among the most extraordinary buildings and works of architecture in the world. They are understood, I think rightly, as the highest expression of the High Middle Ages that are really complete expressions of, of an artistic vision and religious vision of the world from the High Middle Ages that brings together stonework, painting, sculpture, glass, music, all together in a kind of complete and enveloping uh, experience if you ever get to see these Gothic cathedrals. So I want to explain some about what cathedrals are, what does that word even mean, and what is Gothic? What does it mean that a building is, is a Gothic cathedral? And then I'll talk about Notre Dame specifically, and what is so distinctive and significant about it. It is, of course, one of the earliest uh, Gothic cathedrals and possibly the most famous. It's definitely among the top three or four most famous cathedrals in the world, really, uh, of any style. And so it was, of course, very dramatic to have sort of the eyes of the world on this uh, unexpected uh, cataclysm. But, uh, but I want to put it in a bit of perspective, right? Why, why does it matter? And also, why should we not be too shocked or overwhelmed by this particular crisis that Notre Dame is facing today? So before I get into those details, I want to give you a little sense of the really turbulent and tumultuous life that a cathedral often lives and survives through, and how we can make sense of how cathedrals survive and persist through the centuries. I wanna just read you a little summary of the life of Rouen Cathedral, which is another enormous Gothic cathedral just a bit north of Paris in Normandy, France and all of this all of these facts from the timeline of the history of Rouen can all be found on wikipedia it's just widely available information so let me just read you through a little a little sketch of the life of this cathedral a church was already present at the location in the 4th century and eventually a cathedral was established in Rouen it was enlarged in 650 and visited by charlemagne in 769 All the buildings perished during a Viking raid in the 9th century. St. Romain's Tower was rebuilt in 1035. The buildings of Archbishop Robert were consecrated in 1065. The cathedral was struck by lightning and burned in 1110. Construction on the current building began in the 12th century in early Gothic style for St. Romain's Tower, front side porches and part of the nave. The cathedral was burnt again in 1200. Other buildings were built in the High Gothic style for the main works, such as the nave. The cathedral was again struck by lightning and burned in 1284. In 1302, the old Lady Chapel was taken down and the new Lady Chapel was built in 1360. The spire was blown down in 1353. Construction of the southwest tower began in 1485 and was finished in 1507. The Butter Tower was erected in the early 16th century. The realization of the Butter Tower caused disturbances in the façade, which caused the reconstruction of the central portal and the west front, begun in 1509 and finished in 1530. The original Gothic spire suffered a fire in 1514, but nevertheless the project of a stone spire was denied. In the late 16th century, the cathedral was badly damaged during the French wars of religion. The Calvinists damaged much of the furniture, tombs, stained glass windows, and statuary. The cathedral was again struck by lightning in 1625 and 1642, then damaged by a hurricane in 1683. The woodwork of the choir burnt in 1727, and the bell broke in 1786. In the late 18th century, during the French Revolution, the state nationalized the building, and. And sold some of its furniture and statues to make money and the chapel fences were melted down to make guns. The Renaissance Spire was destroyed by lightning in 1822. A new one was rebuilt in the neo-Gothic style but of cast iron instead of wood. The cathedral was named as the tallest building in the world from 1876 to 1880. During World War II, the cathedral was bombed in April 1944 by the British RAF. Seven bombs fell on the building, narrowly missing a key pillar of the lantern tower, but damaging much of the South Isle and destroying two rose windows. A second bombing by the U.S. Army Air Force, just before the Normandy landings in June 1944, burned the oldest tower, called the North Tower or St. Romain Tower. During the fire, the bells melted, leaving molten remains on the floor. In 1999, during Cyclone Lothar, a copper-clad wooden turret, which weighed 26 tons, broke and fell partly into the church and damaged the choir. So you can see with the example of Rouen Cathedral from these Wikipedia facts I just listed off, Notre Dame, by comparison, even factoring in this recent fire, has had a comparatively easy time of it and has been fairly well protected and spared, although it's had its share of close calls too, as I'll mention later. Cathedrals holding up against fire, even bombs, hurricanes, lightning and religious and political attacks is nothing new, right? And if we look at the example of Rouen after suffering all of these crises one after another, it's always somehow been put back together and even extended to the point that for a time it was actually the tallest building in the world. And this is one of the facts that captures how remarkable the Gothic cathedrals are, right? That they are all made from stonework, except for a few modern ones. They're all stone, no steel substructure. They were created initially by human and animal power, no machine power, using basically craft methods studied and passed down orally and in practice. And yet many of the tallest buildings in the world up until the 20th century were Gothic cathedrals. Rouen was one of the biggest also Ulm Cathedral in Germany uh, is currently the tallest gothic cathedral and it was one of the five tallest buildings in the world built before the 20th century Uh, so they are incredible feats both of art and engineering and yet they remarkably came about at a time when Europe was still a comparatively poor isolated and weak part of the world and it shows the genius of workers and craftsmen, the devotion of medieval people to these monuments and what they represented, and most particularly the obsession of height, which other more powerful and rich civilizations like the Islamic world and China didn't necessarily share. Right? Uh, and I'll I'll talk later about, about why that is, right? So the cathedrals are incredible monuments of the people who began them and supported them and also of the communities and the societies that have continued to support them and maintain them. And that includes modern day France, right? And its commitment to maintain and repair and extend the life of Notre Dame, even though France is comparatively a much less religious society than it used to be is in fact one of the most secular societies in the entire world right so this is another irony of gothic cathedrals today is that they're you know outstanding monuments to a particular kind of religious devotion but now they've become symbols or artifacts in societies where religion is rapidly declining so let's go back and say well what what is a cathedral okay so a cathedral is technically a church that is the seat of a bishop right so a bishop is a higher ranking priest who leads the church in a certain zone usually a a diocese surrounding a, a city and the bishop's church is called the cathedral right the the bishop's actual chair that he would sit in was traditionally called the cathedra right and so his church is the cathedral church Cathedrals don't necessarily have to be big, but traditionally they are bigger than ordinary churches. Uh, they tend to be in larger towns and cities, and they're made large in order to be able to host large gatherings, right? Observances of major holidays like Easter, right, which theologically is the most important Christian holiday, and they tend to follow certain basic patterns and forms. They're usually cruciform, okay, and certainly. All Gothic cathedrals are cruciform, meaning they're laid out like a cross with a big, long central nave that you walk into from one end, usually the west end, and it has galleries and colonnades, and then once you get closer to the altar in the east, there's a transept, a sort of additional gallery crossing across it. So you have a little sort of open space in the middle where you can see around you in all directions, right? That's, that is the conventional form. And so Christian iconography and the Christian belief in the death and resurrection of Christ is actually written into the very shape of the building, right? Which is something you can't always see when you're looking at it up close, right? Many cathedrals also have adjoining buildings like cloisters where monks or canons might live. And hence they were uh, gathering places, not only for worshippers who wanted to go worship in the cathedral, but also people who wanted to learn or study with the monks and canons in a major city. And so medieval cathedral schools like uh, at Paris were the forerunners of what became universities. And as for their use, cathedrals are, of course, they're large churches, right? And they do mass and other basic rituals of Christian worship, uh, you know, weddings, baptisms, other Christian sacraments. They're also a place to socialize. People can gather together, uh, talk, meet friends, meet maybe romantic partners. And there's uh, music. Pipe organs have been common in Gothic cathedrals since the 1300s okay and there are also used to be a whole variety of other instruments that we don't hear so much anymore like the hurdy-gurdy which is a long hand-cranked string instrument that makes a very distinctive sound and it it almost sounds made up but you can find instances on youtube of of hurdy-gurdies right and and so going to a cathedral could be a very you know fun and stimulating experience for all all your senses And there are also places for meditation, for sort of smaller, uh, more private, quiet, reflective worship, okay? They usually have small side chapels attached, uh, especially around the back of the cathedral, around the altar, for more private reflection. And most of them also have a crypt, a sort of lower level which, in addition to having tombs for important people, also can have small chapels or galleries for quiet prayer and reflection. Several cathedrals also have rather mysterious labyrinth patterns set into the stone paving of the main hall, also called the nave. There are examples at Rheims, Chartres, and Amiens. And it seems that in the Middle Ages, people used to quietly walk or crawl along these labyrinth paths in the floor, and it had some sort of meditative purpose to it. So a massive building like a cathedral with all of these different parts and aspects can serve all sorts of purposes right, and needs and could really be a kind of living place Technically, there have been cathedral churches since almost the beginning of Christianity, you know, since there have been bishops, right? But Gothic cathedrals are usually bigger, more elaborate, more monumental, and also built to last. And so more of them remain in Europe, and and others have been built now beyond Europe, too, in the Americas and other parts of the world. So what is Gothic? What is a Gothic cathedral? Well, Gothic is a particular style of architecture and of engineering, which uses very high vaulting, pointed arches, and ribbing. So the style that was common in the early Middle Ages, from the time of Charlemagne up through the 10th, 11th centuries, is what we call Romanesque, which tends to be sort of sturdy, symmetrical, elegant, using arcades, usually low arcades of rounded half-circle arches, sort of like you'd see in a Roman market or maybe a Roman basilica, right? So Romanesque churches and monasteries tend to basically mimic a Roman basilica, and they can be very pretty uh, and elegant, but they are usually dark, okay? There's not much space for windows. They can be cold and drafty uh, without much fresh air, and so in a lot of ways they're uncomfortable, right? And you can go into certain beautiful Romanesque chapels like the one in the Tower of London, and they're very pleasant, pretty spaces, but you can see where they fit into a fortress, right? And they can feel kind of fortress-like and even look sort of fortress-like from the outside, right? So the Gothic style, what we today call the Gothic style, slowly revised and adjusted and eventually replaced the Romanesque style in the High Middle Ages, right? It's the signature style of the High Middle Ages. And the idea of using high vaults, right, high vaulted tunnels, high archways, and peaked arches is to raise ceilings up higher, right? Support taller covered chambers and then open up spaces in the walls all around for more windows and doors, right? To allow in more air and particularly more light, right? So height and light were the watchwords of Gothic, right? And when we go into a Gothic cathedral today or a Gothic chapel like Saint-Chapelle, it can feel sort of dark to us, right? It has that sort of romantic, dim light, okay? Because because there was limited glass, because there's no electric light, right? Uh, but for the time, they were remarkably open and light buildings, okay? On a sunny day, they were brightly lit and you could see vibrant colors, you could see shining metals, uh, and you could see each other. You could see the priest performing the mass on the altar. You could see other people around you, right? And as I said, they use pointed arches, right? Which is inspired a lot by Islamic architecture, right? And also ribbing. Uh, so the contours of an arcade or a vaulted hall will have ribs of kind of stronger, thicker stones that then can bear, the, the structural idea is they can bear more of the weight of the ceiling or the towers that they're holding up and that relieves some of the load on the walls and ceilings in between the ribs and if you relieve enough of that weight then you can basically break through and put in more windows. So what you end up with is this highly complex contoured space that can look almost like a forest right and many of them have been described this way of it's like looking up into a forest of lines of stone and of light dappled light coming in through the windows in sometimes stained glass windows right the gently curving lines and the high open spaces also evoke heaven and try to represent the sort of unity and harmony of the cosmos, right? With, with smooth, curving, uh, harmonious parallel lines running right from those huge uh, heights down to the floors, right? Where, where the people stand. So you can feel sort of lifted up, connected to this massive heavenly space above you. It evokes the medieval belief in a sort of unified cosmos or the great chain of being. Right? the The notion that everything holy and profane is uh, ordinary people, saints, angels, God are all connected right and and fit together into a sort of divine scheme of the universe, right, in the words of the historian Otto von Simpson, a cathedral, a Gothic cathedral is supposed to be an image of the kingdom of God, unified harmonious space and it's supposed to inspire a kind of religious experience in which you can see a sort of grand harmonious scheme around you and you're able to identify with all these other beings, whether they're uh, God or Christ or angels or simply the other people around you that you're sort of sharing this uh, beautiful overarching vision. Right? And, and as I said, it envelops you. There's sound, light, often smells. So this Gothic style developed gradually, but it seems to have started certainly in France. And when it began, it was not called Gothic, okay? That's that's a later word, a negative word, that people in the Renaissance attached to this style, saying it's sort of barbarous. At the time when it began, it was simply called the French style. And it seems it started, the the basic ideas were first tried out, at the Abbey of Saint-Denis, just outside Paris, which is an important monastery and an abbey church, patronized by the French crown, where French kings were, for centuries, were traditionally buried, right? So Saint-Denis is closely connected to the French monarchy, and the Abbot Suger had their choir rebuilt in the year 1144 with this sort of high peaked arches and vaulting and large windows, right? And this model from Saint-Denis was then quickly followed and imitated by cathedrals at Noyon and saint in this, the 1150s, right? So the area of Paris and the region called Ile-de-France around Paris were the new center of this new kingdom under the Capet dynasty, right? So I mentioned how the previous style Romanesque really began from Charlemagne's court, right, and his imperial chapel at Aachen, well, the Carolingian dynasty gradually fell apart and lost control of the empire, including France. And eventually in the 10th century, a new dynasty came to power called the Capes that worked very hard to piece back together a coherent unified kingdom centering on their capital of Paris, right, on the Seine River. And once they had reached a certain level of success and prosperity and wanted to assert themselves as major new powers in Europe they started sponsoring gothic constructions right like beginning with the abbey of, of Saint-Denis right so there's always been a close connection between the gothic and France and monarchy right king louis the 7th was the king from this dynasty in the mid-1100s, and he was a builder king, right? And he was the main first sponsor of Gothic building. The style then spread out to the rest of France. You know, Gothic, new Gothic buildings started springing up in in southern France. And then from there, outward all over, including to Britain and Germany. Uh, So you see a lot of Gothic constructions from the 1200s, 1300s in England, Scotland, Germany. And then also it did pass some into Southern Europe, to some parts of Italy, and Spain. So those areas didn't adopt Gothic as completely because they had so many Roman, you know, Mediterranean models all around them. But you do see some Gothic monuments like the Cathedral of Milan in northern Italy. There is a Venetian Gothic style in Venice, which you see especially in the Doge's Palace, and Catalonia in Spain. So the Cathedral of Barcelona is an example. So Gothic it was adopted on other smaller sort of chapels, abbey churches, sometimes private homes, palaces. Saint-Chapelle, built by Louis IX in Paris, is a great uh, you know high Gothic building. Uh, King's Chapel at Cambridge in England. Rosalind Chapel is a remarkable example of late Gothic in Scotland. Also Westminster Abbey, which is a, a royal church in England and also some civic buildings like the offices of the Generalitat in Barcelona. But nonetheless, cathedrals are the height, right? Cathedrals are the most visited, the most used buildings right at the center of important cities, and they are the most ambitious, most extreme Gothic projects, right? And Gothic cathedrals tend to be extremely complex and ornate, And there was, as I said, an obsession with going higher and higher. The biggest, eventually, when it was completely finished, is Ulm Cathedral in Germany at 530 feet. So, you know, bigger than any skyscrapers that were built until well into the 20th century. And it was built, you know, piece by piece in stages, all in stone between 1377 and 1890. And as I said before, it was one of the five tallest buildings built in the world before 1900, uh, once it surpassed, slightly surpassed, Rouen Cathedral. So how were these buildings built for the most part, right? How were the sort of core structures first created in the Middle Ages? Well, they were made completely by hand, right, by teams of stonemasons, stone carvers, and carpenters who usually were hired uh, as laborers by the church or whoever the patron was, and lived in temporary buildings set up at building sites called lodges, usually sort of wood, wood and tarp temporary worksite buildings. And this term lodges, you you know, you probably know is still used by, by Freemasons today, right? And, and Masonic lodges are the descendants of these building site lodges. They used human and animal power, right? No steam power nor electricity, which makes it incredibly ironic, of course, that the Notre Dame fire, it seems, according to authorities, was most likely started by an electrical short circuit. (laughs) So it survived all these centuries, uh, and the biggest hit it's ever gotten is possibly because of electricity. So these Workmen of mostly stonemasons and some, uh, some carpenters and other craftsmen who lived in the lodges created a kind of secretive craft guild, you know, somewhat similar to other craft guilds like weavers or tailors, but more closed, more secretive, because these large teams of builders had to negotiate for pay with their employers and they wanted to maintain cohesion and as well as protect the quality of their work and negotiating for wages and working conditions was illegal in many places and so they had to be very secretive and control who participated in the work and what they did and what they knew in this way you can say they're the closest of any medieval guilds to modern day unions and in some places like in England when the Crown issued proclamations limiting workers' wages, the stonemasons often were able to negotiate and illegally break those pay caps because they knew that their skills were highly valuable and that employers would pay them closer to what they demanded. We have the most information by far about medieval stonemasons from England and Scotland. There's just the most documentation and more of it has survived. Uh, but we do also know that certainly before the end of the Middle Ages, there were similar worker organizations in France called compagnonage, right? And there, there are compagnonage for different crafts, but the one for stonemasons and builders is particularly old and strong and still functions to this day. So these Masonic lodges in Britain and the Compagnonage in France created very elaborate rites of initiation, uh, secret words, secret symbols, uh, and elaborate legends about their origins, going back to, in some cases, Hermes Trismegistus or to the craftsman figure from the book of Genesis called Tubalcain. uh, but especially they connected their origins to Solomon and Solomon's temple. Right, and the idea that they, that their knowledge and their secrets started from the building of Solomon's temple. Uh, and if you look at the earliest surviving uh, descriptions of Masonic rites of initiation, which come from Scotland, they they include questions that the brothers of a lodge should ask to a new person who shows up and wants to be admitted into the lodge, in order to prove that they're an initiated mason and one of the questions is where was the first lodge and the answer they're supposed to give is in the porch of solomon's temple right so this is sort of the central myth that it seems stonemasons all over western europe adopted for themselves as for how they actually built what was the technical process there's practically no documentation in fact In this case, I think I can go all the way to say there is no written documentation about how the stonemasons built. And what we have is a few pictures here and there that might show a crane with a pulley, uh, a bit of scaffolding. And there is one sketchbook from an enigmatic uh, man who lived in the 13th century in France called Villard d'Honnecourt, which shows some sketches of buildings and their sort of schematics of their structures, as well as some sketches of decorative motifs. But it seems that Viard de probably was not really a mason himself. He was just a person interested in technical knowledge who made a few notes and drawings, right? So we really have nothing passed down to us from the builder's actual building process, right? And the largest reason for that is probably because most of the Masons were illiterate. You know, some maybe could read and write, but their knowledge was passed down orally, right? It was by oral teaching and action that you would learn the technical skills and processes to build a Gothic monument, right? And as you learn more skills, you might move up in the hierarchy of workers and eventually become a master Mason overseeing a building site, right? And it's theorized. Some scholars theorize that Viard de Onocourt's uh, notebook, which we do have, was used as a sort of instructional sketchbook for explaining uh, building designs to new masons. Right. So, so it was used for for these sort of largely illiterate new builders. Okay. To teach them this oral craft knowledge. The building of a cathedral was undertaken very gradually piece by piece, usually without any master plan, okay? Rather, a team would be brought in, and they might work for a few years, maybe a decade, building the beginning of a cathedral, which would be the back part, the choir, which contains the altar, right? Once you had that built and you could close it off temporarily, you had a church building you could use. But then people would run out of money or the masons would go move to some other site and it would stay that way until a new team was brought in to extend it further. And they might then build the nave, right? And then another team might build the transept. And then another team might build belfries or a spire, right? So it would go stage by stage over the course of decades, right? And most large cathedrals took at least 100 years just to have a complete workable cathedral form as I said, there was no architect. There was no architect who sat down and said, here's the whole design of the building. It didn't work that way. Rather, the initial team that began building would create a set of templates, which is simply wooden boards with dimensions and shapes for the basic building blocks that they're using. Once they were done building, they would seal up those templates in the building, maybe in the crypt or the sacristy, and then the next team would take those templates and use them to create the stone blocks that they needed that would fit the correct dimensions to continue the structure. And each team of masons and each master mason who oversaw periods, phases of work on the cathedral would judge whether to continue exactly the same patterns and exactly the same decorative style that the previous team had created or to adjust it, update it, change it completely, right? So if you look at a cathedral and you know the different styles, you can see the, the time lapse over which it was built. You can walk in the entranceway and see late Gothic with extremely high pointed arches, a lot of tracery, a lot of ribbing, And then as you go back, it gets a little simpler. You get sort of more gently peaked arches. And then once you get to the choir, you might see early Gothic or you might even see Romanesque. If it was started before 1150, you might see Romanesque rounded arches and sort of Greco-Roman looking pillars with capitals, right? So the form and style of the building, of the different parts of the building, tell the story of the different generations that built it. As each section was being built, the the stonemasons made very painstaking use of scaffolding and shoring, right? Materials were very expensive. You didn't want to waste any stone, nor wood or nails, all of which were expensive. So one of the first things stonemasons had to use was how to take a limited amount of wood and create a sturdy scaffolding structure from which you could then lift and place the stones and ornaments. And as you built the stone structure, you'd have to add in scaffolding, take away scaffolding, add up shoring, sort of uh, beams to hold up the different parts, uh, the different walls, the different parts of the vault to keep them stable. So really, the process of building was not so much a matter of just mapping out what do you want the finished structure to look like. Rather, you had to map out in your mind a thousand different structures of stone and supporting wood scaffolding and shoring that would be able to remain standing at every stage of construction, right? And this is, this is part of why it took generations just to finish one of these buildings. The roofs of, a, of cathedrals were important. Why are they important? Well, the real threat, and this is something I might repeat again later, the real threat to a stone building isn't fire, Fire is something you usually can handle or recover from. The real threat is water and ice. You have to keep water from leaking and seeping into a stone structure because it will erode the stone and every time it freezes, it will start to crack the stone. And especially when you have an enormous stone structure with huge weight on it, any little fissure can, can grow until eventually the structure falls apart. So the roof had to be wood or maybe wood faced with metal, as the case may be, and it had to effectively run water away from the stone vault, right? And protect that sort of soaring high vault ceiling. And the water would be channeled away through various sorts of gutters and and gargoyles and water spouts. The roof has to be uh, strong enough and steep enough to keep that water out. It also has to resist wind, also help to resist the side compression forces from the flying buttresses, okay? So if you have a tall, narrow, vaulted building like Notre Dame, and you put a ceiling on top of it made of stone, then that ceiling, if it's heavy, it might be enough to crush those walls and sort of push them out till they collapse out to the sides, right? So in order to prevent that, you can add flying buttresses, these leaning stone uh, sort of ramps that push inward right and hold the building, literally compress the building together in order to keep it standing. right? So all of these things are structurally necessary. Now, that central vault, you can't build it, you can't put it up there until there's a wood roof protecting it, right. So until that vault is there, you need a sturdy, usually oak wood roof holding up those walls and absorbing those compressive forces pushing inward from the flying buttresses. And if you then build your stone vault, you should ultimately have a stable strong structure, right? But it's a question if you take that roof away, what happens then? Is the stone vault going to hold up or are those uh, buttresses pushing in from the sides going to collapse, collapse it together? Hopefully you can visualize uh, what I'm talking about here, right? So the roofs have to be uh, strong. They have to absorb the compressive forces. And they have to keep water out, okay? And as I mentioned, the decorative gargoyles that you often see on Gothic cathedrals like Notre Dame with faces of monsters, they're not just decorative. Most of them are water spouts, that funnel water and then spit it away from the building in order to minimize any water damage, right? Uh, And others that don't have water spouts often are grotesques which drip water. They sort of take water from the water spouts and then drip them over their faces or bodies away from the side of the building, right? So they're actually structurally necessary. Okay, and it happens that some of those uh, gargoyles and grotesques on the top of Notre Dame, were actually removed for maintenance work at the time when that fire broke out. Okay, And there's a legend, I don't know how well supported it is in the evidence, but it's often told that these gargoyles are also supposed to be protective, that they're like guardians keeping bad spirits away from the cathedral. So is this the reason why the fire happened at this moment? Because those gargoyles on the roof or around the roof were taken away. So if you've seen a Gothic cathedral from outside or gone in, you probably also know that they're richly ornamented and decorated, right? Cathedrals are sometimes called the poor people's book because they have scenes, biblical scenes, scenes from the lives of saints, sculpted or painted all around all the surfaces, right? The the Gothic tries not to leave any bare unused surfaces and those images and icons could be used as aids to tell stories and remember stories right some some cathedrals have registers running around the top of the room showing all the scenes of the life of christ or maybe all the stations of the cross right and it it, it's almost like uh it's almost like the equivalent of powerpoint slides that you can point to and explain ideas and stories and beliefs of the church So a lot of them are saints and biblical scenes in statuary, relief sculptures, some painted frescoes, also in some cases in uh, arrangements of colored stained glass windows. Uh, In Notre Dame specifically, you see various figures on the front facade, sculpted on the front facade, showing the complete story of humankind as understood by the medieval church. So you have Adam and Eve. Right, the Garden of Eden, the fall from grace, and then you also have the last judgment, which is supposed to be kind of the final closing of the story of humankind. Right, so you can have a sort of cosmic history of the world, from past to future, all laid out in those sculptures. On Notre Dame, you also see the martyr Saint Denis or Saint Denis uh, holding his head. So he was the first bishop of Paris. He was beheaded. uh, So he was a martyr. And according to legend, he, he didn't die immediately, but picked up his head and started walking around Paris with it. So, uh, so he's a symbol uh, both of, of Christian martyrdom and of the city of Paris, right? Now, Gothic cathedrals also often contain all kinds of other symbols that aren't biblical and that are not so easy to interpret that might involve different sorts of legends, folk beliefs, uh, esoteric or mystical beliefs. Uh, On Notre Dame, there's a sculpture representing an allegory of alchemy with a man seated with a book and a ladder rising up in front of him, maybe representing a sort of ladder of mystical knowledge leading towards the heavens, right? Now, if you go back to older Romanesque buildings, there are pillars with very strange capitals, Right. so carved capitals showing figures of monsters, strange non-existent plants, devils, Uh, humans, sometimes uh, biblical scenes, sometimes humans in hell. So there was a great variety of of ideas and images being put into those capitals in Romanesque, right? And then in Gothic, when the buildings are so much more elaborately decorated, there's a sort of explosion of themes and figures that get developed and that you often see repeated in many different places. Uh, One prominent example that is particularly interesting is the so-called green man which is a male face usually sculpted sometimes painted a male face with vines and foliage issuing out of its mouth and this is extremely common in all kinds of gothic buildings all around europe and um, again there's no text explaining uh, what this what this is or why it was included in gothic buildings there's a sketch of a green man in viart de notebook uh, and he labels it le feu or sort of the leaf man again he doesn't explain why why was this included but it's very prominent and it might represent nature death and resurrection immortality okay and it's found especially frequently around pulpits okay in places where priests preached from okay and it may have something to do with the preaching of the gospel, okay, the, the leaves, the vines coming out of the mouth represent maybe the life-giving Christian gospel, but we don't know. It might also go back to pagan or, or folk religious themes, you know, impossible to say for sure. Starting in the 1200s, the, a particularly ornate Gothic style called the rayonnant style was started, which involves even more light, right? Walls that often are more window than wall, very complex surface decoration and lace-like tracery, right? So if you've seen uh, windows with little traced uh, scrollwork lines of stone, uh, very intricate patterns. Uh, this The 1200s was the time when stained glass really became a de feature of Gothic buildings, okay? And so the Rayonan style, it's very dazzling to see, but it's not as heavy and imposing as the early Gothic buildings, right? Uh, Probably the masterpiece of this style is the Choir of Cologne Cathedral in Germany, right? And there's a lot of it in Germany. And also the buildings were decorated with temporary or seasonal decorations that we don't necessarily see anymore. Bunting sculptures and figures made out out of harvested crops or flowers, okay? The first known Christmas tree ever recorded, was erected in the Strasbourg Munster, a, a large Gothic abbey church in Strasbourg in 1539, uh, and this elaborate ornamentation came under attack. Firstly, in the Reformation in France and in other, and then in other countries, including England. Okay, so in the 1520s, 30s, 40s, Protestant, sometimes Protestant mobs, sometimes authorized Protestant government authorities went and attacked statues, tapestries, fresco paintings, destroyed images, okay? And in a way, you can call this an iconoclasm. But really, it was more than just an iconoclasm because the Protestants saw embellishment of churches as a kind of idolatry. So they destroyed decorative cloth, silver, uh, objects and instruments, woodwork, and so on. And these were often stripped out, and burned or thrown into rivers, okay? And so a lot of cathedrals, uh, both in Protestant countries and in France, show the, the effects, even the scars of the Reformation. As for Notre Dame specifically, it's located on Ile de la Cité, a large island in the Seine River, which is probably where the original Celtic village of Paris started, okay? So it's it's right in the historic heart of the city. That particular site on the island may have been a pagan temple originally, seems likely. Uh, But by the year 700, it had a large Roman-style Christian basilica with uh, colonnades in the Roman style, right? And it was very uh, impressive, but it probably also was quite dark, right? So in 1160, the Bishop of Paris, Sully, uh, proposed building a new cathedral, that would be large, slightly larger, and that would have more light, okay? Uh, And this was appropriate for the new growing city, which was the political and also economic capital of this French kingdom. And he wanted the cathedral to include a facade with sculptures and a large plaza in front from which people could see the sculptures and, as I said, point to them, tell stories, share ideas, right? The cornerstone for this cathedral was laid in 1163 with the Pope uh, in attendance, and the, bu- the building went through four major building phases, beginning first with the choir and then eventually ending in the early 1300s with the two large belfry towers that we see in the front. Again, it took several generations and several different teams of builders, right? each of which had its own methods and its own ideas as it contributed, okay? It was largely completed, the the main structure was basically finished by 1260, so after 100 years, and in that year the major south-facing rose window was installed as sort of the crowning achievement, uh, the crowning ornament of the cathedral. But more additions were made to the building complex, like cloisters and a new sacristy and things like that up until 1345. So all included, it took 185 years to build. Some restorations and replacements were made in the 16 and 1700s, including some embellishments like the sacristy, which you can still see, which is in a bit more of a kind of Renaissance neoclassical style. Now, it's very significant, although many kings visited and supported in some way the creation of Notre Dame, it was not an expressly royal church, okay? Kings of France were traditionally crowned at Rheims Cathedral, which is northeast of Paris, and they are buried at Saint-Denis, okay? So Notre Dame is not a building serving the crown, like those cathedrals, or like Westminster Abbey in England, which is a royal peculiar, as they call it. Okay, and instead, Notre Dame de Paris is traditionally more associated with the city and the the public. Okay, and even the expensive uh, embellishments, like the belfry towers, were funded largely by guilds of wealthy merchants. Okay, who contributed. To the creation and maintenance of the building as a way of kind of currying favor and prestige with the public. And probably also ordinary people, people of limited means, made what small contributions uh, they could. This is common in Gothic cathedrals. You might remember when I was talking about Rouen, I mentioned the Butter Tower, right, built in the 1500s, which, you know, it's not a tower made of butter, but. But in a sense it is because during Lent, traditionally people were forbidden from eating butter. That was taboo during Lent. But if people wanted an exception from that rule, then they could make a small donation to the building of the cathedral as a, you know, an indulgence basically. And so ordinary people who might make these small contributions of a few dollars, those donations were collected to create the so-called butter tower. Right. So this is another example of how a lot of people could feel very connected and invested in the cathedral of their city, right? Uh, that, they, that they had helped to bring it about, and it was part of their lives. Notre Dame, it is still the main cathedral, of course, of Paris, which is the capital, and it was sometimes used for royal occasions, particularly by royals who were looking for public favor and public support, right? Uh, for example, Henry VI of England, who tried to make a claim, did make a claim, to the throne of France, was crowned in Notre-Dame in 1431. Uh, in 1572, King Henry of Navarre married the French princess Margaret of Valois at Notre-Dame. Okay? And this was a very significant wedding because it was a Protestant ruler marrying into the French royal family and possibly becoming the heir to the throne. So it sort of threw in doubt whether the future monarchs would be Catholic or Protestant. Uh, And this wedding, although it was at Notre Dame, it was held in the plaza in front rather than in the church because he was a Protestant, right? And in that case, it didn't end up working out well because the wedding sparked riots in which Catholic mobs massacred protestants who were in the city to celebrate this wedding Uh, and that's what we call the saint bartholomew's day massacre but nonetheless a couple decades later henry of navarre did still end up becoming king of france as i said also people enjoyed music and there was all sorts of music that could only be played on pipe organs or on the massive instruments in cathedrals and notre dame got its first pipe organ in 1330 it was then later enlarged in the 1400s until it had over 2,000 pipes. Okay. Now, 12 remain today from that medieval organ, uh, but it is still considered sort of the, the greatest, most impressive pipe organ uh, in the world. It was, as I said before, the cathedral was embellished from time to time, sometimes with crown support in the 1600s, usually with Baroque art, Okay, the sort of late Renaissance style. And most of the artwork and sculpture that you can still see in the cathedral tends to be Baroque. Uh, and the, the most prominent, the biggest example, is the Pieta sculpture of St. Mary holding Christ by Nicolas Cousteau from 1723 to twenty five. The revolutionary government seized the cathedral in 1793. And it was one of the churches that they cleansed of Christian icons, and rededicated to the cult of reason, and then later the cult of the supreme being. And for a time, uh, Mary was moved out of the church and replaced with a statue of Lady Liberty. Okay, All kinds of ornaments were stripped out and some of them destroyed. For example, on the front facade, there's a row of sculptures, statuettes of kings of Israel. And these were taken down and beheaded okay that's what french revolutionaries like to do they like to behead kings uh some people say that well they mistook these sculptures of the kings of israel for kings of france i don't know if that's true i tend to doubt it i think more likely the revolutionaries understood that that frieze with sculptures of the kings of israel was also metaphorically celebrating the kings of france right So after these attacks and the rededication during the revolution, the building was neglected for a long time and went pretty quickly into disrepair. The government handed the church, control of the church, back to the Catholic church in 1802, okay? Once Napoleon made a certain set of agreements and concords with the church, it was given back in 1802. And then it received an important holy relic, which is the crown of thorns, right? So that's a, a crown actually made of reeds that may possibly have originated in Palestine, and it's believed to be the crown that was placed mockingly on Christ's head when he was crucified. Uh, and this uh, relic was obtained by the Byzantine emperors in Constantinople in the early Middle Ages. Then during the Crusades, It was uh, seized by Venice as collateral for debts that the Byzantines owed to Venice. And then the King Louis IX, who I mentioned before, who was a crusading king, made a diplomatic bargain where he paid off some of the debts of the emperor at Constantinople and in return got this crown of thorns as uh, a mark of his, his piety and his prestige as a crusading king. He built Saint-Chapelle to house, specifically to house this crown of thorns, and it stayed there until the Revolution, when the revolutionary government also seized Saint-Chapelle and moved the crown of thorns to the National Library. But then in in 1802, the crown of thorns was given to Notre Dame as part of this, uh, this agreement between Napoleon and the church. And Napoleon did go to some efforts to clean up and restore the building a little bit, mainly so that he could have his coronation there as emperor in 1804. Uh, So you could say there was a little Indian summer due to Napoleon, but still, nonetheless, the building went rapidly back into disrepair and became very dirty. Stone buildings at that time often got very dirty from soot, from coal and wood fires. Many ornaments were broken or went missing. They may have been stolen or just fallen off. It seems that this may have happened partly because the church and the public had become estranged, right? So the people of Paris for centuries had looked at Notre Dame as a kind of civic symbol and a point of pride for their city that all of them had kind almost a sort of ownership in even though it was technically owned by the church Uh, but after the revolution the church really took a conservative stand and aligned itself with monarchy with the traditional rights of other institutions like the aristocracy and opposed the sort of popular democratic ideas of the time and so probably for political reasons interest in notre dame really dropped. And by the 1820s, the building was leaking, cracking, uh, broken in many places, uh, possibly in danger of collapse. Uh, The organ was barely working, and it was a home for a lot of pigeons, pigeons on the roof and even inside. So it was in this context that Victor Hugo published in 1831 a novel, a romantic novel, taking place in the Middle Ages, which he called Notre Dame de Paris but which in English we call the Hunchback of Notre Dame, right? And this really fired people's imaginations. It created a new romantic interest in the medieval cathedral, and it sort of hit right as Gothic revival was coming about in the artistic and architectural world. So first with furniture and then in architecture, people in the 1830s started looking back to these medieval models and seeing them as, as exciting and romantic and mysterious. Okay. And as it happens, uh, the new houses of parliament at Westminster in England were also built in the 1830s, and they were sort of the first massive Gothic revival monument. So with this sort of renewed interest and sense of ownership of Notre Dame, Uh, The king, Louis-Philippe, ordered a renovation in 1844. And this renovation took 25 years in total, and it was led by a young, at the beginning, a young architect, Eugène Viollet-le-Duc. His team replaced many of the sculptures that had been broken or disappeared. Uh, Stained glass, a lot of which had broken, was restored. Mural paintings were added in. In, uh, in bare spots, and a new stained glass window in the 19th century Gothic Revival style was also installed, okay, and it was different uh, from, from the purely color pattern, older stained glass windows. Viollet-le-Duc also added the Gothic Revival spire, uh, the sort of very tall, narrow spire, on the crossing of the cathedral, with a bronze cock, which is one of the, the, the symbols of France, a rooster on top, and a statue of St. Thomas, which very strangely and closely resembles Viollet-le-Duc. Viollet-le-Duc put forward a certain sort of philosophy of restoration, and he said, and I, I hopefully will make an okay translation here from the French sentence, he said, restoring an edifice is not simply maintaining it, not repairing it, or remaking it. Rather, it is reestablishing it in a state of completion that could never have existed at a given moment. So in his view, he wasn't trying to return the look and form of the cathedral to any particular moment in the past. Rather, he was trying to bring in all the different elements replace what was missing, add new elements in some points to create a sort of complete structure. So Notre Dame at this point became a sort of celebrated symbol of France, really, and of the new French uh, nationalism, which was growing in the 19th and 20th centuries. And Notre Dame and other important cathedrals were taken over again by the state in 1905. And at this point, it wasn't for the same reasons as during the French Revolution, right? It wasn't because the state was opposed to the Roman Catholic religion or saw the church as an obstacle to reform. Rather, it was because the state just considered these monuments so important to the self-image and fame and reputation of France. Just a few years later, Joan of Arc, the sort of first national hero of France, was canonized in Notre-Dame in 1909. Okay, And with this ceremony, you can see an increasing kind of merging of church and state, right? with the same people, the same buildings, the same artworks, used as not only symbols of, of Catholicism or Christianity, but also of France, of the French nation and the French people. The cathedral was almost destroyed during the Nazi occupation in World War II. So in 1944, there was a rebellion uh, which took over some buildings in Ile de la Cité, in the old section of the city, and the Nazi generals occupying Paris were ordered to suppress this rebellion, including by bombarding Ile de la Cité, right before then uh, charging in. The Nazi general knew that this meant that very likely they might hit and destabilize or destroy Notre Dame as well as Sainte-Chapelle. And possibly for this reason, they held back until they negotiated a surrender from the rebels. Okay? And so the building ended up surviving. Later after the war, it hosted the funeral of Charles de Gaulle, right, the World War II resistance hero and president, who was sort of the new kind of modern hero of France. And then in the 1960s, another renovation was taken out in which the 19th century window commissioned by Viollet-le-Duc was taken out and replaced instead with one in the medieval style, with a non-figurative pattern and deep colors, right? So Viollet-le-Duc's window had painted figures in in a method called grisaille, sort of black and white figures painted on. This was not accurate to the high Middle Ages, and so that window was swapped out for one that blended in more with the medieval style, okay? So you can see the philosophy of restoration is starting to change, where the idea more and more becomes returning the building to how it's supposed to look originally, okay, originally in quotation marks, right? And it is also co-opted increasingly as a sort of national shrine and historic monument, not so much as a religious building. Okay, The government gives the Catholic Church the right to use the building as a house of worship in perpetuity, but the government owns it, and church attendance is declining. Right? Regular weekly masses tend to get fewer and fewer people, and by the end of the 20th century, there. are are far, far fewer worshipers than there are tourist visitors in the building, right? So it's become a national symbol. It's become a tourist site. But increasingly, it's neglected again, okay? With very little attention and very little money for maintenance and repair, right? It's a, it becomes a low priority of the French state who is supposed to be responsible for maintaining it, right? And meanwhile, a big growing problem for Notre Dame, as for some other Gothic cathedrals, is air pollution, something that was not so much a factor in the Middle Ages, right? But soot, uh, salts in the air, and acid rain, okay? Which can accumulate on surfaces and which can also work their way as waterfalls can work their way into the stonework, right? So as you may know, another renovation was undertaken beginning last year, which would particularly try to shore up and refurbish the spire, right? Possibly the most precarious part of the whole building, right? But this renovation was very cash-strapped, okay, and and behind schedule, and arguably, you know, some observers felt that the building was in great danger, that conditions might again deteriorate, leading eventually towards some uh, collapse, because again, it the the support of worshipers was declining, and the French state and the French public, in a sense, you could say, took the building for granted. But then, on that fateful Monday in April 2019, a fire broke out. We don't know exactly what caused it, but the authorities and the custodians of the church believed that it was electrical. It might have been a short circuit, and some have said a computer glitch, although it's hard to know exactly what that means without further explanation. It began in the scaffolding around the spire and then quickly spread into the roof over the center of the building. The very, very old oak beams of the roof seem to have caught fire very quickly. You know, they had been aged, they were probably dry, and acted as tinder and fed an extremely fast-spreading, hot fire. It's possible that it was such a fast and hot fire, also in part because the cathedral itself acted as a kind of chimney, with air moving into the building and then rushing up into the roof to feed that inferno. It was, you might say, arguably a disaster waiting to happen, right? All the materials and arrangement were there, and this is just when it happened. The fire, within a few hours, destroyed the entire roof over the main body of the cathedral and the spire. Firefighters were able to stop the fire from moving into the belfry towers, which have wooden and other flammable materials in them, and hence they were able to stop a structural collapse of the facade. It seems that the collapsing spire when it came down, it fell mostly forward onto the vault of the building. And the impact of that fall punched several holes into the stone vault, right? So remember, the, there's, there's this arched stone vault covering the nave and then the wooden roof above it. And this collapse uh, broke the vault in several places, including a fairly large one at the crossing right underneath where the spire used to be nevertheless it seems the structure did hold okay what remains is stable and has been called structurally sound it's likely that there was some heat damage to the stained glass rose windows uh, but they mostly are intact okay and whatever strain or heat cracking took place can probably be fixed Uh, the smaller rose windows up in the upper register were blown out by the fire and there was some damage from falling burning beams crashing through the ceiling onto the floor had the fire continued it's possible that it might have further weakened and cracked the vaulted ceiling enough for the pressure the compressive pressure from the flying buttresses to have collapsed the walls inward some have said that that might have happened if the fire had continued to rage for another 15 or 20 minutes i don't know how they measure that you know who knows that might be dramatic exaggeration so the basic stone fabric of the building does remain however the roof will be extremely difficult to replace. It was made of over a thousand large oak trees, which had been cut from forests all around France, forests most of which are now gone, okay? So just obtaining oak beams of that size and strength may be just about impossible. And furthermore, the precise process by which the various beams were assembled and placed in order to form the complex structure of the roof is unknown. Will it be possible to somehow work backward from existing records and figure out how they did it? Uh, Will they come up with some sort of technological fix or workaround? We don't know, right? But obviously there are no master carpenters, 12th century master carpenters around to explain how do you even construct a roof like that, okay? So while the fire was still burning, the president of the republic, Macron, had what you might call a Giuliani moment, okay, tweeting his resolve that the, the church would be rebuilt completely. And very quickly, a fund was formed and prominent French billionaires started to competitively pledge money. Okay, particularly owners of major French fashion houses like Louis Vuitton and Dior pledged uh, hundreds of millions of euros within 24 hours. We can give them, of course, the benefit of the doubt that they truly care about the survival of this French landmark. Uh, but it's also significant that it's very public-facing industries like fashion that might want to curry favor and get good press who are giving the most. Very quickly, many critics pointed out that this uh, fire at Notre Dame got far more attention than many smaller but important disasters, like church arsons of black churches in the United States, or a fire that happened at the Al-Aqsa Mosque in Jerusalem on the same day. Also, it got more attention than equally devastating uh, disasters like the Fire in the National Museum of Brazil last year and the destruction of the ruins of Palmyra in, in Syria. So this is a valid point, but one can also uh, consider different reasons for this disparity. okay? One, of course, is eurocentrism and racism, right? that people care more about a European uh, structure in a largely white Christian country than they do about mosques or ancient ruins in Syria and so forth. That's probably a factor. But you also have to consider that for whatever reason, Paris is also a major touristed city, one of the most visited cities in the world. Millions of people from all over the world have been there. Uh, Notre Dame is a great monument right in the center of this city, so millions of people from all over the world have seen it in person, have visited it, right? And when the fire happened... Thousands witnessed it live in person and were able to video, tweet about it. It could be easily reported on TV. Okay, unlike many other disasters like, uh, like the destruction of Palmyra by ISIS, there was no public crowd there to witness that. Uh, and in fact, the, most of the world could only learn about it later from satellite images, right? So that's another important reason why this disaster really captured people's imaginations. So as the people of France and the Roman Catholic Church consider what to do, we should keep in mind that we shouldn't be too daunted, again, by this disaster, right? And part of why cathedrals have lasted so long since the Middle Ages is that they're extremely well built and that they can be salvaged and repaired from all kinds of catastrophes, right? Cathedral fires are fairly common, right you put up a wooden roof or other wooden structures and after a few hundred years it's going to catch fire right so it happens often to many cathedrals and as you might find as i go forward it's particularly frequent in england right it happens all over where there are cathedrals but it but especially in england which may be partly because of the climate right england has a colder wetter climate than than france or spain or italy and a colder climate means more fire, right? More hearth fires. A darker, cloudier climate means more lanterns, candles, right? Also, more water, okay? So, uh, again, water is the big threat to, to stone buildings, and that might be part of why there have also been various collapses, okay, of cathedrals in England. But But it doesn't only happen in England. So as for destruction by fire, sometimes... Buildings destroyed by fire are recreated just as they were, but more often they're transformed and rebuilt in a new style that might borrow from but also extend or, or revise or elaborate the older style. Right. So some examples of that, Canterbury Cathedral, which is the most important religious building in England, right, the seat of the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, burned down in 1070 and was then rebuilt by the normans in a sort of norman romanesque style bigger than before it then burned down again in 1174 right and it seems that that time the fire started from some nearby neighboring cottages in the town cinders of which then ignited the roof and the roof and much of the interior of the building burned and it was rebuilt again in a more gothic style so a lot of the great monumental churches we know today are actually the result of rebuilding after fires. Chichester in Sussex, Chichester Cathedral, was destroyed by a town-wide fire that destroyed much of the town in 1187. St. Paul's Cathedral in London, which was originally a Gothic cathedral, was destroyed in the Great Fire of London in 1666. And Christopher Wren was commissioned to rebuild it and many expected that he would create a new sort of updated Gothic building, but instead he surprised the kingdom by proposing a neoclassical Baroque building with rounded arches and vaults in pure white stone and colorless windows, right? So uh, St. Paul's is, again, it replace it replaces what used to be a Gothic monument But it's considered one of the great masterpieces of architecture in Britain, right? Uh, It is much more plain, open, airy, white, right? Uh, And so later in the 19th century, it sort of fell out of favor, and particularly Queen Victoria considered it sort of dull and undevotional, and she insisted that Byzantine style, colorful Byzantine style mosaics, be added in to the apse to kind of jazz it up. So you see both elements. In the St. Paul's of today, St. Paul's was also severely damaged in the Blitz, okay, in the 1940s when German bombs broke through and destroyed a lot of the transept, and that was later rebuilt. York Minster, the great Gothic cathedral in York, in northern England, was hit by fire in 1984. This fire was probably started by lightning, but it's uncertain. And the transept roof caught fire firefighters decided to intentionally collapse the roof and ceiling of the south transept in order to stop the fire from spreading to the rest of the building. The rose window in that part of the transept was shattered by the heat, but some of the lead frame held and it's been rebuilt. And the ceiling was replaced with a new one, including new roof bosses and a design competition was held for the new bosses, uh, the sort of ornament pendants hanging from the ceiling. So in a sense, it was a compromise, right? The basic form was recreated as it had been, but there were new ornaments and decorations. The restoration of the collapsed transept roof and ceiling actually cost only a little over two million pounds, so it was less than a tenth of the cost of the cost of the renovation of the main facade right so recovering from disasters in many cases even if it is expensive it's often less expensive than repairing and shoring up the crucial stone structures that already exist okay also in England there have been several collapses structural collapses without any necessary cause, you know, that weren't because of a fire or a bomb, such as uh, Ely Cathedral in Cambridgeshire. The north transept collapsed in the early 1400s and was never fully rebuilt. It was simply replaced with a buttress holding the building up on the north side, and that's still there, okay? Lincoln Cathedral suffered a fire and earthquake damage, okay? A rare English earthquake in 1185, and it was rebuilt in a Gothic style. A wood spire was added onto Lincoln Cathedral in 1311, which made it, at that time, the tallest structure in the world. Uh, But that wood spire rotted and eventually fell and collapsed in 1549 and was never replaced. Again, Chichester Cathedral in Sussex had a large masonry spire which collapsed telescoping in on itself and falling into the church in 1861 and queen victoria again a lover of gothic paid a lot of the cost to rebuild it and the rubble of that collapsed masonry spire was then used to build a congregational chapel right so waste not want not many structures as i said again were destroyed in iconoclasm beginning in the Reformation. So an important shrine to St. Richard attached to Chichester Cathedral was demolished in 1538. Uh, Statues and stained glass were destroyed in Ely Cathedral and many other buildings all around Northern Europe. Stained glass was broken out in the Cathedral of Canterbury. And also the tomb of St. Thomas Becket was destroyed during the Civil War in the 1600s. So when Puritan parliamentarians occupied Canterbury, they uh, destroyed the tomb and then took the remains of Thomas Becket and burned them and dumped the ashes into a river. And the reason was because they considered the pilgrimage, the practice of making pilgrimages to Canterbury and sort of paying homage to the saint to be idolatry, right? They wanted to suppress veneration of saints as it still persisted. Another Gothic monument that was very narrowly saved is Roslyn Chapel in Scotland, just outside of Edinburgh, which is one of the most uh, elaborate and distinctive late Gothic chapels. And uh, it was threatened with destruction by the protestant government the lords of the congregation that took over scotland in the 1560s and so the owners of the chapel the sinclair family simply sealed it up and left it and moved away and basically hoped that the protestant government would leave it alone and they did and so it happens to have survived and you can still see it today some gothic cathedrals were destroyed in whole or in part by war okay especially in the 20th century with explosives right so strasbourg's dome was hit by german artillery during the franco-prussian war in 1870 and it was afterwards rebuilt in a romanesque revival style largely by workers from the same workshop under violet le duc that was restoring notre dame in rheim german troops uh, shelled the cathedral in 1914, during World War I, and it's unclear why, if it was intentional, it may have been simply an act of pure vandalism. This started a fire uh, on the roof, which, the heat of which melted the lead tiles, and molten lead poured down through the water system and out of the mouths of the gargoyles. Right? So imagine gargoyles spitting hot molten lead out onto the street. Uh, In 1940, the Nazi Luftwaffe bombed uh, Coventry and destroyed much of the town, including most of the cathedral. So what remains in Coventry is the shell, the sort of outer walls of the nave, and a bell tower, which are still standing. And the bell tower is still the tallest building in the city, and they've left it as a kind of uh, memorial to the war. Uh, In Dresden, Dresden had a 1730s Baroque-style cathedral, which was severely damaged in the firebombing of Dresden by the Allies in 1945. And for a long time, it sat largely ruined until it was partly restored by the East German government in the 1980s and then more completely after 2000. Some cathedrals have been hit by earthquakes, you know, Apart from that rare uh, English example I mentioned, the 2010 earthquake in Haiti destroyed the Our Lady of the Assumption Cathedral, and fundraising and a design contest were launched. Uh, a Puerto Rican architectural firm won the design contest, and this new design is, in some ways, you could say more similar to a medieval cathedral because it makes use of large windows and open spaces for natural light because electricity is very expensive and inconsistent in Haiti, right? So you could say in a way they're, they're working under similar conditions to medieval builders. And the idea, again, as I've said, the idea of restoration has changed over time. People increasingly look for monuments like cathedrals to be recreated the way they were in some sort of real or imaginary moment in the past. Right? They're seen increasingly as historical artifacts, not as living buildings right? that should adjust and be shaped to the needs of, of worshipers. The sort of shift in views by which people see masterpieces like Notre Dame more as pieces of art to be appreciated and not as actual active religious buildings is illustrated in an AP headline, which some people pointed out uh, in Twitter as ironic. Uh, So AP had a headline saying, Tourist Mecca of Notre Dame also revered as a place of worship. (laughs) Little known fact, it's a church. And one responder on Twitter pointed out they could also print a headline saying, quote, actual Mecca also a place of worship. <laughs> so uh, so much of our vocabulary and our metaphors come out of religion but have been increasingly, you know, stripped of of any memory of those religious origins, right? And the shift in how people view religious buildings, the increasing crisis in maintaining religious buildings that fewer and fewer people actually use is illustrated I think, particularly by the Cathedral of John the Divine, which is a neo-Gothic cathedral of the Episcopal Church in New York, which was started in 1890, right? And the idea was to build a stone cathedral in the Gothic style, and it would be funded by basically the upper class of New York City, which was largely Episcopalian, you know, people like the Vanderbilts and so on. So John the Divine was built gradually in stages. It's still unfinished, okay? it's There are still towers planned and projected that haven't been built. There's a sort of simple dome over the crossing. But the nave is the largest cathedral nave in the world, right? So, So it is a very sophisticated realization of medieval building techniques, right? However... The cathedral, like most Episcopal churches in America, has had falling attendance, right? And it's really dropped off dramatically since about the 1950s. As the building was still being worked on, a fire broke out in 2001 that destroyed the transept, okay? And it took years of fundraising just to rebuild what had been lost in that fire, and progress has basically halted. Okay, There's been a small addition to one of the front Belfry Towers. Uh, there's still no spire. Okay, And the church has started charging an entry fee Okay, because the overwhelming majority of people who enter are simply tourist visitors and they don't have money just to maintain the building, let alone to actually continue building and extending it. So they've started charging an entry fee and they also sold... Land, a strip of land immediately adjoining the cathedral to the north, and developers have built some sort of weird concrete building. I'm really not sure what it is. I don't know if any listener knows, uh, whether it's apartments or offices, but it's some kind of boxy concrete building that in no way reflects the cathedral, and that is right up against the north face, basically blocking a view of much of the cathedral. And this is the sort of thing that the Episcopal Church now has to do just to keep scrambling to keep a building like John the Divine intact, right? Uh, So the Cathedral of John the Divine demonstrates that although there may be right now an outpouring to rebuild Notre Dame, it's really the year-to-year maintenance over decades, over generations that is more tricky right will people still be investing to do serious renovation and to protect the fabric of the building not just to respond to dramatic disasters like this fire that will be the real test of whether these buildings remain standing right and again as the York Minster showed it's really that uh, renovation and upkeep that actually costs more than reconstruction from a single disaster right So the question is about future generations, right? And that's why in conclusion, I would just suggest, you know, you may or may not care about religious buildings. You may or may not care about Gothic buildings. But rather than just focusing on Notre Dame and maybe donating to support that reconstruction, which is a perfectly worthwhile thing to do if that's what you want, look instead more to monuments and gathering places that matter to you in your own area or in other parts of the world that don't get these kinds of headlines, right? Like, for example, the Haiti Cathedral, the Cathedral of Our Lady of the Assumption, which completely collapsed in the earthquake and has to be totally rebuilt from the ground up. And in the meantime, there's a lack of spaces of worship and a lack, hence, of spaces for social gathering, celebration, appreciation of art and music, that cathedrals provide and there may be all sorts of others uh, around you in your own town or city historic buildings public buildings that are in danger of simply dying from neglect right not not necessarily from a lightning strike or an earthquake but from age neglect the forces of time and nature right so so if there are any you know of that you care about i encourage you to you know leave a comment or send me a message and we can share links. And again, if you want to keep this podcast coming, I urge you to go to my Patreon page, also under Blaming. Thank you.